He captained his high school basketball team despite being 5'7", and then cured vasculitis and became head of a federal agency where he was admired by six presidents. And he went from enemy to hero among AIDS activists. Who am I talking about? Well, Dr. Anthony Fauci, of course, who's just announced his retirement after 54 years. Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for insightful debate about healthcare business and policy and a top five health podcast. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. David, you aspire to become 5'7". Well, I mean, John, I, with my basketball shoes, I do think I make it there, by the way. But so counting? what is going on with the, 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 the wonderful Dr. Fauci? He's retiring? Who, who, who said he could do that? That's what people said. You know, is Dr. Fauci retiring? He's only 81. Now, John, the thing is, he says he's actually not really retiring. He's just moving on, you know, to the next step in his career, which is which is not yet announced. But he actually stayed on because President Biden asked. I think he was probably ready to retire at the at the end of the previous uh, administration. But no, he's uh, he's stepping down, John. I think it's a brutal job to be helping lead the country through a pandemic crisis that you know has it became it went it went from a pandemic to kind of a political battle where you're you're not just playing a role as the uh, leader of the scientific and public health efforts which he's extraordinarily successful at but really getting hung up with some sort of bizarre political challenges although this isn't the first time that public health has become political david John, I think it's a good opportunity to go through and just talk about, you know, Dr. Fauci's achievements and accomplishments. He started actually in the federal government when he was 27. Now he's 81, which a quick math, John, means he spent two thirds of his life uh, there. And he's accomplished a lot uh, over that time. And I think this episode gives us a chance to go beyond what people have heard in the most recent public health emergency and talk about the really the arc of his of his career because no, there's a, a lot it's, there. It's, it's, it's a great point. You know, it's a, he's a great immigrant success story. His, his, uh, his Italian parents emigrated to the – parents or grandparents immigrated from, to the U.S. His father was a, a pharmacist. And he went to one of the fabled Jesuit free high schools that you can only get into uh, based on admission, but they charge no tuition at all. Regis, where he – be you know that the whole notion of being of service was the reason why he committed to become a doctor uh, while actually in high school, and then he went to the uh, Holy Cross uh, and then uh, while Cornell for his uh, medical background. But but throughout his career, even early on, he was deeply committed to healing and helping improve the ways we heal uh, folks who are suffering. John, there's a lot of people. There's a good number of people that are committed you know, to that kind of a course of action. There are very, very few, if any, that have actually had uh, the same level of accomplishment. So, you know, sometimes people ask me, you know, what are Dr. Fauci's achievements? Because they hear I defend him sometimes in the, in the current crisis. There's a whole bunch of things. Maybe I'll tick off a few and then we can discuss them in a little more depth. One thing is that he actually created effective treatments or cures for a, a number of formerly fatal immune diseases, including yeah, he's not just he's not just a talking head. That's a really important point. He was actually... Um, uh, you know, of the 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 two or three million scientists who have published, at you know, in the in the eighties, he was ranking as the thirteenth most quoted, which is to say, he's published such effective and important articles across many domains of infectious diseases and particular diseases that he's one of the most one of the most widely referred to scientists in the world. 
and and then there's that. And then he literally went. I think the vasculitis. Can you explain what vasculitis is, David? I know the statistics on it, but do you know what it is? Yeah, well, it's it, luckily we don't have to worry about it too much, but it's sort of an immune uh, response that used to kill something like 90% of people uh, that got it. Uh, and with a new drug regimen that Dr. Fauci put in place, it's now it's like 95% uh, remission rate. Sure. A lot of his... Uh, a lot of his his um, his research in the area of of immune response, including uh, autoimmune. So there's also a number of rare uh, diseases that he was able to basically uh, you know develop treatments for, including but, by using but even e- but even even more common ones, David. I mean, he was one of the innovators around uh, uh, tuning up the doses of cancer anti cancer drugs that have turned some of these drugs from treatment to sort of a managing the disease. I mean, cancer is pretty common. Um, in rheumatoid, the rheumatoid arthritis, which is a which is a, a really painful uh, condition that affects a lot of people, uh, the association identified him as probably the most important scientist affecting the many people uh, uh, who are suffering with RA with novel treatments. But perhaps his biggest, you know, uh, the, the public got to know him with slightly longer hair and slightly uh, uh, and, and and with different glasses. Uh, during the AIDS epidemic, uh, the, the, just just the early stages under Reagan, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because this is this you know, very few people have more than one kind of dance in the public where they're where they're where, where, where that kind of you become that prominent, particularly as a doctor. Well, John, as you know, as we said, he'd been in the government for over half a century, and he's been the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases for thirty eight years. So that takes us back to the. Uh, to the AIDS HIV uh, pandemic, and in that time, uh, he was very involved um, with uh, with this disease as it came out, and it was a real kind of a mystery what was going on. Uh, and he made a lot of enemies in the LGBTQ uh, community. Larry Kramer famously called him an incompetent idiot and a pill pushing tool of the medical establishment. Um, and basically, the AIDS activists were were very. Uh, um, you know, very hopeful and very aggressive about getting experimental treatments made available. Yeah, I mean, let's 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 put it in context, though. Larry Kramer was a very famous AIDS activist and and writer. I believe he actually had AIDS. I, I can't recall precisely, yeah. but he was a really thoughtful, aggressive, prominent. But but at the time, there was a real fear among the the the, the LGBTQ community that people weren't taking this disease seriously because it was sort of a gay disease, not a disease that affected as it actually does, the, the rest of the population, and they were being singled out and perhaps not properly served, what they were pushing for is the aggressive use, to your point, of new treatments and frankly needed to, uh, through organizations like ACT UP and others, make sure that people were focused and prioritizing this, uh, this at, at the time, absolutely deadly mortal disease. And so I think they were motivated by the deaths of their friends, and 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 of course anybody would have would have they probably would have attacked anybody who would be perceived to be slow walking, whether they were or they were not treatments. Uh, but what's remarkable about that one, David, is that now he's seen as a hero in the community about pioneering drugs and 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 helping kind of uh, shotgun them through the system. And Larry Kramer actually ended up identifying uh, Dr. Fauci as one of the heroes of the crisis. He said he was the only 
uh, true and great hero there. And what you know, Dr. Fauci did is he made these experimental treatments available widely. Uh, you know, he wasn't in charge of approving drugs. He wasn't working for the FDA. That's their job, the Food and Drug Administration. But he had an opportunity in order to move things through quickly. Now, an interesting contrast, the other, John. The other, the other interesting thing, I think, from that period is he also made a point offline without the cameras present of directly meeting with activists. And he never lost track of how the importance of a public narrative that's tied to a private narrative about what he could do and what they needed to see and what they should do as a as a government. He's a deeply committed connector and 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 really felt very personally, I think, that he needed to talk to the activists and the people who were who were suffering. John, let's actually note a parallel from that time and see what's what's changed. And I think it's more what's changed in terms of technology um, and the environment we're in and rather than what changed with Dr. Fauci. There were some things that Dr. Fauci had said toward the beginning of the AIDS epidemic uh, that didn't end up panning out. So one was that he warned that he thought that routine close contact among family members could potentially spread AIDS. Now, he corrected that within about a year, which was noted as sort of very fast for anything that you're publishing you know, in a medical uh, journal. If we contrast that to what happened with a more recent public health uh, emergency where he had uh, made some comments, ironically, saying about, you know, didn't expect that there was asymptomatic spread, didn't think necessarily that masks uh, were needed. He corrected that a whole lot faster as the data became available. But in this era of social media, where there's, you know, instant analysis, and everyone's all of a sudden, you know, an expert, plus you have, uh, you know, people, especially in, in the Senate, uh, from the uh, from the other party that uh, or from you know from the president's party at the time uh, that are ready to attack you and it's a whole different uh, a whole different ball game plus with the lack of um, effective leadership uh, from the very top you know he really got himself into a bad spot. Yeah, I think that the 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 there there is a really interesting and Peter Hotez mentioned this in one of our earlier Dr. Peter Hotez earlier uh, podcast. There is a um, a demonization. Um, and you know, and 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 political backlash for anybody who's going to be sort of taking, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a reason why we have the Statue of Liberty, uh, not the Statue of Social Order, in uh, in New York. I mean, we are a country of that that really of people that um, fervently and sometimes violently protect their own personal personal liberties. And so, you know, obviously, the the there's a the, there's going to be politics associated with public health because it's it's public health. Uh, but there's a science is not perfect. Um, it is an evolving narrative of the truth as we know it right now, and w- there will be inconsistencies if we are actually continuing to do research to tune up and improve what we know to care for and heal more people. I, I do think that there that the, one of the challenges in public health is finding a way to frame the fact that this is the truth as we know it right now, but perhaps not the and the final or the ultimate truth, uh, because otherwise activists on any side will as, assume that inconsistency means insincerity or dishonesty, and it doesn't. It it it, it yeah. often just reflects the facts of the moment. Well, John, I think. You know, this isn't about Dr. Fauci specifically, but if we look at the whole public health establishment and why, for example, the Centers for Disease Control wasn't so well prepared to deal with a recent public health emergency, it's that they are used to saying, okay, here's a problem. I'll go study it and I'll come back and I'll tell you the answer once I've had a chance to properly analyze it. Now, that leaves a big vacuum uh, when people need information to be able to act on. 
And then if you sort of say what the truth is at the time, as you know it, it leaves you vulnerable to G or inconsistent or whatever later. Now, it's they, I think the public health agencies can do a better job, but it's also the case that others are looking to attack. And it's that's it, only partly what the public health agencies can do. We also need uh, some goodwill from others. It was interesting what Dr. Fauci said in his goodbye uh, press conference. And he said, you know, this is a quote, when I see people in this country because of the divisiveness, not getting vaccinated for reasons that have nothing to do with public health, uh, as a physician, it pains me. I don't want to see anybody hospitalized. I don't want to see anyone die. Whether you're a far right Republican or a far left Democrat, it doesn't make any difference to me. Yeah, I mean, the the, the reality is he's he's he was he was beloved and respected by Reagan and the Bushes, and he was beloved and respected by you know Obama and Biden and Clinton. I mean, this is a guy who's not political. At all, and I think one of the interesting things and, and challenges for Dr. Fauci, who we got to just thank him for his service. That's a long service to, to for all of us, and for his amazing achievements. You know, he really is actually one of the better communicators I've ever seen on public health issues. He comes across very sincerely and believable, even amid the most the, the biggest attacks on him in 2020. Uh, you know, he still was one of the most trusted people in America. I still think he is one of the most trusted public professionals in the country. Um, and it's because he is plain spoken. He he speaks directly and he and he he, he can explain the facts in a way that 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 the average American can consume. And I think the vast majority of people thought, you know, he's he's uh he's 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 someone they could trust. In fact, I would say other than Ashish Jha, he's probably the best public professional public health professional we've had in the last 20 years. I mean, I, I, CDC director Walensky is a, has a real problem communicating and people don't trust her. And hey, John, it, it's just, less just, with just, the just facts. She, just because she's from Massachusetts, don't give her a hard time. <laughs> now, here's another contrast, John. But we, 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 should, we should also talk about like, we've talked about AIDS. What about Dr. Fauci's achievements in MERS, Ebola, SARS? I mean, he's been involved in some of the yeah. toughest things we've had to deal with. For sure. You know, so one area was after 9-11 where there was concern about attacks, um, you know, with white powders and, and, and so on. He was involved in leading the drug development, uh, you know, in that, in that period of time. And luckily, we haven't really had to use it, but he kind of quickly mobilized, uh, you know, drugs for, for biodefense. And there's a number of things that uh, didn't, didn't get to the same level as the yeah, recent but, public health but, I mean, by white powder, you're not talking about cocaine. You're talking about anthrax. The, the, there was a real fear post- 9/11 that it was easy uh, relatively easy to develop designer drugs in a and the and on, on a bio basis and he was he was involved in actually creating a pretty massive infrastructure around biodefense and there were all these fake anthrax or in real anthrax uh, 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 threats uh, and I you know again he the range of things he's been involved in to help protect us against that the you know hemorrhagic Leading disorder, the, the Ebola that is just so terrifying, you know the the avian flu. Um, I mean, just it's it, the swine flu too, John. Places with swine, yeah. No, it's 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 just remarkable, and I think that the there's a reason why you know uh, you know George W. Bush gave him the 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 uh, the, the the President's um, Medal of Freedom. Do you remember what that was about, or if, if you, is, is that have you lost track of that one, David? <laughs> Well, John, I think you could you can get that for you, you, most recently you could get that for sucking up to the the president, right? But uh, that wasn't why he got it. 
Do remind well, so us. Do John. you remember what? Do you remember what he got it for? Uh, was it for Pepfar? It was. And what yeah. is Pepfar? So, John, one of the things that that happened, I think we have a couple contrasts here we can go out on. Uh, one is that uh, after fighting, you know, HIV/AIDS in the U.S., there was a realization: hey, uh, we need to be able to look at the rest of the world, which is actually where there's you know very high uh, incidence and uh, and huge impact uh, from AIDS, and particularly in Africa. So PEPFAR was actually called the uh, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And actually, I don't like a lot of acronyms. I like that one because like PEP providing some, you know, some energy and FAR for something uh, far away and really made a huge difference of allowing essentially uh, generic drugs uh, to be developed and manufactured, distributed with all the infrastructure that's needed um, to really make a difference on uh, HIV in Africa. And that's extremely well, you know, deserved. John, I want to add uh, maybe to end things with a, a, a little bit of a contrast. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about who's going to testify before various committees in Congress and so on, resistance even to subpoenas for that. I asked Dr. Fauci about what's going to happen now that, uh, you know, the Republicans are, you know, some of his biggest critics are controlling the House of Representatives, if only barely. And he said, he'll be happy to testify. He says, quote, if there's oversight hearings, I'll absolutely cooperate and testify before the Congress. Obviously, you may not know, but I testified before the Congress a few hundred times over the past 40 years or so, so I will have no trouble testifying. We can defend and explain and stand by everything that we've said, so I have nothing to hide. I love that guy. I mean, one of the things that that um, he said in one of his uh, later interviews was that he the people ask him, what, what, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want to do? And he talked about teaching in the hopes that his legacy will be an inspiration for others to serve in public health. And gosh, with the kind of achievements he has, curing diseases, protecting the United States, with taking, uh, withstanding withering attacks, helping create breakthrough uh, 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 solutions for deadly diseases, and then helping protect. I mean, I think the PEPFAR thing alone has saved up through 2020 over 20 million uh, lives, largely in sub-Saharan Africa from the ravages of AIDS. Uh, he, he really is an inspiration. Well, that's it for yet another edition of Care Talk. We've been speaking today about a five foot seven giant of public health, Dr. Tony Fauci. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. If you liked what you heard or you didn't, we'd love you to subscribe on your favorite service. 